And now if you're able, uh, please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord read together. And we're reading Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Acts 17, 1 through 15. Now the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask now that you would help us. We seek to understand it. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, uh, that your word and your spirit would work in us uh, to challenge us, to correct us, to encourage us. Uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we know you'll meet us here. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts, and we are looking at Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 15, which I just read for us. Uh, last week, uh, we heard the story of Paul's missionary journey to the city of Philippi, and in it, we quickly found uh, Paul and his companions in trouble. Uh, Paul cast a spirit out of a young slave girl who was uh, being used as a fortune teller, and this angered her owners. Uh, she was now worthless to them as a source of income. And in their anger, they dragged Paul and Silas before the officials of the city. And they accused them of disturbing the city by teaching practices that were against Roman law. And so uh, they were thrown in jail until God miraculously opened the doors. Uh, but Paul and Silas didn't leave when the doors opened. Instead, they stayed. And as a result, the jailer hears the gospel and becomes a follower of Christ. And he and his entire family are baptized. And then the next morning, Paul and Silas are released uh, with an apology from the city officials, 
and they depart from Philippi. And that's where we left Paul and Silas and the other missionaries accompanying them last week. And in our passage today, we find Paul and his fellow missionaries continuing their, their journey in Macedonia. And as they travel, they continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, as Jesus as the Messiah, uh, the Savior of sinners, and the Lord over all. And as they do this, uh, once again, trouble finds them. Uh, trouble continues to find them. In chapter 17, Luke, uh, the author of Acts, highlights the mixed response to the gospel that, that greets these missionaries as they travel from city to city. And, and the reality is uh, that the messengers of the gospel, uh, they continue to meet with mixed responses in every city they come to because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings trouble to the hearts of those who hear it. The gospel troubles and challenges the hearts of those who hear it by proclaiming that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that the Savior is also the Lord who they must now obey. And so there's a, there's a phrase that uh, we usually use in a friendly or maybe in a joking kind of way uh, when we see someone coming, and uh, it's just someone who has a knack for being up to something. Uh, usually they have the charisma to also get you into something. Uh, when we see them coming, we say, here comes trouble. Uh, here comes trouble. Uh, and we all know people like this, people who are just drawn to trouble, uh, who are somehow attracted to chaos, who just... Uh, manage to attract trouble and chaos everywhere they go. And uh, people, uh, these are people who usually have a funny story. Uh, maybe they've got a smile as they're walking up to you and you just know something's up. Um, maybe it's one of your kids. You may have a kid who's just kind of in your household who's, who's known for being uh, a little bit of trouble. Uh, maybe it's one of your grandkids. Maybe it's an old friend, someone in your family. Maybe it's been said about you. Uh, maybe when people see you coming, they say, here comes trouble. Uh, but there are just some people who can't go far without trouble and chaos finding them. Well, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul becomes that kind of person. Uh, everywhere he goes, trouble and chaos find him. Uh, but unfortunately, the kind of trouble that finds Paul uh, in the book of Acts isn't the kind that makes it for a good story or a funny story. But Paul isn't really the issue. You know, Paul's not the reason that trouble finds him. Uh, the problem isn't Paul, the messenger of the gospel. The problem is the message of the gospel. You know, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, and Lord over all people and over all things, will always challenge and trouble our own claims uh, to authority over our own hearts, uh, authority over our own lives. And that's why we consistently see this pattern of a mixed response to the message of the gospel in Acts, and to this day. Uh, to this day, there are some people uh, who completely reject the idea of Jesus' total authority in their lives and in this world. Uh, some people completely reject the idea of a created order, ordered by a creator without their input. Uh, some people completely reject the idea of a God who gets to define right and wrong, sin and righteousness for them. And they respond, much like the crowds in the book of Acts, uh, with anger and aggression uh, towards God and towards those proclaiming the gospel, especially those proclaiming the gospel in the public square. And yet, as we read Acts and even as we look at today, um, even as the gospel is loudly rejected by many, the gospel continues to spread and to bring new life to believers, to bring hope to those who are lost um, around the globe. And so people are still hearing the gospel. People are still coming to Christ. People are still hearing the gospel and being transformed by God's word and by his spirit. And so just like we see in the book of Acts, you know, the messengers of the gospel continue to meet with mixed responses because the message of the gospel continues to bring trouble into the hearts of those who hear it. And since we know that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
as the Savior of sinners and the Lord of all, uh, will always challenge and trouble our own claims to authority over our own hearts and our own lives. Uh, we need to pay careful attention to our passage today as we consider how we will respond, how we will respond to the trouble of the gospel. And so this morning, uh, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at two important truths that this passage calls us to embrace. And as we begin to look at this passage, uh, we find Paul presenting the gospel in the city of Thessalonica. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again for us. And I promise I practiced pronouncing these cities like for a day, and I still can't pronounce them. And so uh, just bear with me on the cities. Uh, you can see how they're spelled. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 for us. They say, uh, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so as you read these verses filled with difficult-to-pronounce city names, uh, you see that Paul and his companions are traveling on kind of an ancient Roman highway. Uh, the highway was called the Via Ignatia, and it ran from Rome across Macedonia. And in that time, uh, Macedonia was divided into kind of four districts, and each district had its own capital. Well, Thessalonica was the capital of the second district. And after passing through two smaller cities, this is where Paul stops. And it appears that the main reason that Paul stops here is because it had a Jewish synagogue. Uh, Luke tells us that it was Paul's custom to worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath and to proclaim the good news of Jesus as the Messiah while he was there. And so here in these verses, we get a snapshot of how Paul would share the gospel with his fellow Jews. Uh, we're told that Paul spends three Sabbaths in the synagogue reasoning with them from Scripture and it's a picture much like what we see Jesus doing with his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Um, Paul attempts to show them that the scriptures were all pointing to Jesus. Uh, Paul goes and he reasons with them from scripture and to show them that the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Uh, he shows them that the Messiah was to suffer. He shows them that the Messiah would die and then rise again. And Paul explains that Jesus has fulfilled these scriptures and that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And in verses 4 through 9, uh, we see a mixed response to the message of the gospel. So let me, let me reread verse 4 for us. It says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So in verse 4, we find out that some of the Jews believe, but that many of the Gentiles believe, including influential and wealthy Gentiles. So the verse kind of lays out for us that maybe... You know, a handful, some of the Jews are persuaded by Paul, but that many of the Gentiles who are part of that synagogue uh, believe, including some that are wealthy, including some that are influential. And so these believers joined Paul and Silas, uh, both in belief that Jesus is the Messiah, and they likely began to meet with Paul and Silas uh, for worship and for instruction on Sundays as well. And this group became a new church in Thessalonica. And while we know that Paul had spent three sa uh, Sabbaths in the synagogue, it appears that he, he probably remained in Thessalonica for several months, uh, instructing these new believers. And one of the main reasons we, we know this and believe this is because uh, the church in Philippi sent um, a financial gift twice while Paul was there, uh, which would indicate that Paul and his companions remained in Thessalonica for some time. And, so all, and all the while, um, they're there, they're ministering, they're teaching, they're proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And all the while, many of the God-fearing Gentiles in the community were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is an incredible response to the message of the gospel. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not the only response. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9 for us. They say this, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so what we find in this response is that the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica, they become jealous of Paul, and they decide to act. And Simon Kistemacher helps us understand this violent jealousy, uh, why they were so jealous. He says, uh, the church then is predominantly Gentile in character. The Jews had instructed the Gentiles in the teaching of the Old Testament. Paul is reaping a veritable harvest of Jewish missionary activity in Thessalonica because numerous Gentiles had put their faith in Israel's God but objected to circumcision. God blesses Paul's labor so that numerous Gentiles turn in faith to the Lord. Among them are God-fearers whom the Jews had instructed in the basic teachings of Scripture. Consequently, when the Jews see that Paul is taking these God-fearing Gentiles away from the synagogue worship services, they're not merely jealous of Paul, they're angry. So what we have is, um, in the synagogues, um, Gentiles were allowed to come, they were allowed to listen. And so the Jews have been in this community for a long time. And they've been ministering, they've been teaching the Scriptures. Many of the Gentiles have come and believed in God, uh, but they haven't joined the Jewish community. They haven't received the sign of circumcision, uh, but they believe in Israel's God. And so Paul shows up, and uh, he comes in, proclaims the gospel to these Gentiles, and they believe. And they believe, and they leave the synagogue. Uh, for years, I used to teach at uh, Anderson University's RUF conference, and I loved it because, you know, the RUF minister, John Boyd, you know, poured out his life getting to know these students and working to get to know them and ministering to them. And then I would show up for the weekend and, and get to preach three times, and that had this great response um, that was all due to his hard work. Um, and that's kind of what's happening here. Um, <laughs> the Jews have done all this hard work. They've laid the groundwork with these Gentiles, teaching them the scriptures, teaching them to observe the commandments in the Bible. And then Paul comes and tells them, guess what? The Messiah is here. And they believe. And the Gentiles rather, and the Jews, rather than being glad, um, they're jealous, they're angry. And so the Jews have worked for years in this community. And now Paul comes in with the gospel and these Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, but who had not received the sign of circumcision, they leave the synagogue, they follow Paul and Silas, and they turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and much like the religious leaders that we read about in the Gospels, who were filled with this murderous jealousy uh, by the success of the ministry of Jesus, the Jews of Thessalonica are filled with jealousy, and they're filled with anger, and they conspire against Paul and these other missionaries. They, they go to the marketplace, and they find rabble, just people with nothing to do. And so they form a mob, and then they stir up a riot. And then they lead the riot to the house of Jason, where Paul and Silas were staying, hoping to drag Paul and Silas out, but instead they have to settle for dragging out Jason and other Christians who are in the house. And they take them before the city officials, the magistrate, and they accuse them of two crimes. Uh, first, they say, these men who have turned the world upside down, and they've come here also. Um, and what a picture of the gospel. How they've turned the world upside down. Other translations um, 
translate the phrase as, they have troubled the entire world or they caused trouble everywhere. And somewhat ironically, uh, this group accuses Paul and Silas, who aren't there, of causing trouble everywhere when they spent their day forming a riot and then, <laughs> or forming a mob and then starting a riot in their own town, right? And, but they accuse Paul and his companions of troubling the world, of breaking the hard-won peace of this empire. And this is a serious accusation. And then secondly, they accuse them of sedition, of undermining Roman rule by claiming that Jesus is the true king. And these accusations are interesting because there's an element of truth in both of them. Uh, without any intention of stirring up trouble, uh, Paul's missionary efforts have resulted in trouble and uproar in almost every city that he's been to. Uh, and once again, a commentator, Simon Kistemacher, uh, he shares a helpful thought on this accusation. He says, The Jews accuse Paul and Silas, whom they cannot find, of troubling the world. In a sense, the charge that the missionaries are troubling the whole world is correct. The fact is that the gospel troubles penetrates and alters society in every part of the world where it is preached. And so they're correct. They're correct that the gospel troubles the world, but they don't understand the true nature of that trouble. And then similarly, Paul certainly taught that Jesus was the true king, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, sent to rescue for himself a people. Uh, but Jesus' response to Pilate after his arrest, that his kingdom is not of this world, is still true. Um, it's not, not, they still don't understand the nature of who Jesus is as king. And yet, even though these accusations were not true in the political sense they were being used in, uh, that, that these city officials were feared, uh, they were still disturbed enough uh, to punish these men. And so Jason and the others who were taken from his house uh, are released, but first they're required to pay what uh, David Peterson calls um, a good behavior bond. You know, think of it as a bond that basically, if they break their commitments, you know, they were given rules to follow. If they break them, they lose their money. Um, and so they had to pay money as a guarantee that they and Paul and Silas would not further commit the crimes they were accused of uh, by this mob. And they had to make this promise uh, while risking, at the risk of losing the money they'd given. And so after their release, uh, whether this was part of the requirements of these officials, we don't know, or whether it was just the wisdom of the people in Thessalonica, but they send Paul and the others away in the night. And it's, it's, it's crazy to realize that out of this chaotic story of what, nine verses, a church was planted in the city of Thessalonica that continues on after Paul leaves. Uh, this is not, you know, when you're like people go to plant churches, this is not the plan. Uh, just absolute chaos, and then I have to sneak out of town in the dark. Uh, but the Lord plants a church. Uh, Paul and his missionary companions, you know, they're hindered in their work in that city, but the gospel's not hindered, even though the missionaries are sent away. And so we see this church planted in Thessalonica. And then in verse 10, uh, we learn that Paul does not allow uh, these events to keep him from pursuing his mission. Uh, let me read verse 10 for us. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So when Paul leaves Thessalonica in the middle of the night, uh, they go to Be uh, Berea. And Berea was kind of an off-the-road city uh, that was about 45 miles from Thessalonica and so they send Paul away uh, to avoid kind of escalating the trouble in Thessalonica. Uh, but rather than laying low for a few days, Paul heads to the synagogue. Uh, he heads to the synagogue in Berea to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles gathered there. And, and just like in Thessalonica, the message of the gospel receives a mixed response uh, that begins favorably. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 for us. I say this, Now these Jews were more noble 
and those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And here, you know, when Luke praises the Jews of Berea as more noble than those in Thessalonica, he's not just being petty. Uh, there is a significant difference in their response. Uh, they receive his teaching with eagerness. They examine the scriptures to see if what he's saying is true. Uh, they are, they're more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because they're, they're more concerned with the truth um, than they are with, with self or maintaining power or influence in that city. Or as uh, uh, David Peterson puts it, he says, Luke means that the, that the Berean Jews allowed no prejudices to prevent them from giving Paul a fair hear, hearing. Uh, so he says Luke means that the Berean Jews allowed no prejudices to prevent, prevent them from giving Paul a fair hearing. And the result of their eagerness to, to hear Paul teach, the result of their willingness to examine the scriptures, is that many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles are converted to Christ in this city of Berea. Uh, but this early positive response to the message of the gospel doesn't last. Let me read verses 13 through 15 for us. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so Paul and those with him probably worked in Berea for several months before word got back to Thessalonica about Paul's presence there. But again, the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica, filled with jealousy and filled with anger, they come to Berea and they employ the same strategies against the missionaries that worked, that worked for them in Thessalonica. They come, they agitate the people, they stir up crowds, and this would have gotten the attention of the city officials. And before Paul and the others could be dragged out for a trial, these new Christians in Berea, they send Paul away. Um, they even accompany, accompany him as far as Athens. Uh, but Timothy and Silas remain in Berea. They teach the people, uh, this new group of Christians, before they leave to rejoin Paul in Athens. And so once again, uh, the ministry of Paul is hindered by opposition in this city. But the seeds of the gospel take root and they grow even after the apostle departs. And so as Luke uh, recounts Paul's missionary endeavors in the two cities of Macedonia, we see a mixed response to the good news of the gospel. And these messengers, um, and these messengers of the gospel, uh, they meet with mixed responses in every city they come to because the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings trouble to the hearts of those who hear it. Uh, the gospel troubles and challenges the hearts of those who hear it by proclaiming that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the Lord who they must obey. And so what we see in these verses is that where the gospel goes, so does trouble. Where the gospel goes, so does trouble. And the question for us today, uh, before we leave this morning, is this. How will we respond to the trouble of the gospel that demands that we accept a new king over all of our thoughts and over all of our words and over all of our actions? How do we respond when the gospel troubles our hearts with the claims of Jesus Christ uh, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are uh, in need of a new king, um, a better king. You know, what do we do when the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of sinners, that he is the Lord of all, turns our world completely upside down? You know, whether we're encountering the gospel for the first time or for the millionth time, you know, how do we respond when the good trouble of the gospel hits our hearts? That's our question that we're going to look at as we end this morning. Well, in our passage today,
Uh, we're challenged to respond to the good trouble of the gospel in two ways. Uh, the, the first way that we respond to the good trouble of the gospel is by embracing the goodness of the trouble of the gospel. Is we, we embrace the goodness of the trouble of the gospel. And that's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit. You know, the, the truth of the gospel was just as costly uh, to the power and to the influence of the Jews in Berea as it was to the Jews in Thessalonica. Uh, the difference is that the Berean Jews believed that the truth of the gospel was worth the trouble it brought. They, they realized that the truth of the gospel and the trouble of the gospel was worth it. You know, every time that we encounter the truth of the gospel, again, whether it's the first time we've heard the gospel and the good news of Jesus or the millionth time that we've heard it, it will trouble and it will challenge our hearts that are prone to wonder, uh, that are prone to chase after other gods, that are prone to want to define what is good and right for ourselves. That's why we need the gospel to trouble our hearts. Our hearts, our hearts are like infants who have just learned to crawl, who refuse to stay in the safe place where we put them. Uh, maybe you've had kids like that, right? You, you just put them down and you're like, okay, this is a good safe spot. And suddenly they've moved, right? Our hearts are like that. We think that, okay, our hearts are in a good spot, you know, and then we turn around and our hearts are somewhere else chasing after something else. Uh, and that's why we need the gospel to continue challenging us and troubling us with the claims of the gospel. You know, the truth of the gospel is worth the trouble. And that's what the Berean uh, believers realized. The truth of the gospel is worth the trouble of being called to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, the truth of the gospel is worth the trouble of being sanctified as we struggle to put off the old man and put on the new life in Jesus Christ. Uh, the truth of the gospel is worth the trouble of being mocked, of losing opportunities, of suffering uh, now as we look forward to life with Christ in heaven. And uh, there's a book um, called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Uh, it's written by a Puritan named Richard Baxter. And in it, he describes kind of like he imagines and describes kind of what our thoughts will be like when we arrive in heaven. And I'm going to read a short quote uh, for us from that work where he imagines arriving in heaven and reflecting on the troubles of the gospel's saving work in our lives. Uh, he says, Was the world too good to lose? Did I resist leaving all, denying all, and suffering anything for this? Was I loath to die and to come to this? O oh, false heart that almost betrayed me to eternal flames and lost me this glory. O oh, base flesh that desired to be pleasured. O oh, soul, are you not ashamed of your hard thoughts of God and his providences, repining the ways that have led to such an end? Are you not sufficiently convinced that the ways you called hard and the cup you called bitter were necessary? The Lord had a sweeter purpose and meant better that you would believe. Your Redeemer was saving you as much when he crossed your desires as when he granted them. And he was saving you when he broke your heart as much as when he bound it up. No thanks to you, unworthy self, for this received crown, but all thanks to God and the Lamb, and be glory forever. And so here he unpacks this idea, uh, this picture of arriving in heaven and reflecting on the fact that all the troubles we went through for the gospel were worth it. Uh, the, reflecting on the truth of the gospel, uh, but also that the troubles were part of the process and necessary. And so the first way that we respond to the good trouble of the gospel is by embracing the goodness of that trouble. The second way that we respond to the good trouble of the gospel is by embracing the gospel as good news. Embracing the gospel as good news. Um, kind of sounds like I'm saying embracing the gospel as the gospel, uh, but that's, that's what we're saying. Uh, like the noble Bereans, uh, we respond 
to the good trouble of the gospel by being more concerned with the truth than with maintaining authority or power or influence. Uh, the message of the gospel tells us that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, that He is the King over all things, and that that is good news because we are terrible saviors. Uh, we are terrible saviors of ourselves. Uh, we make miserable kings. You know, the gospel tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, that He came to earth, uh, He lived a perfect life, that He died a sinless death, and He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And that you and I can know the forgiveness of our sins and a restored relationship with our Creator and God by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news because we are too sinful and we are too broken to be our own saviors. You know, the gospel is good news because uh, we are too limited in power. We're too limited in knowledge. We're too limited in wisdom. And we're way too limited in goodness to rule ourselves in any way that doesn't lead to our own destruction. And so the good news of the gospel troubles and challenges our hearts to give, up, to give up trying to be the kings of our own little kingdoms and to follow a new savior and a new king, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of following, who is capable of saving. And every fresh encounter with the gospel, it continues to challenge our hearts uh, to look not to ourselves, but to embrace the good news by looking to Jesus as our savior and king. So let me pray for us.